So did everybody have a good Christmas? We did too. I'm going to start out with a little confession this morning. Although I don't watch a whole lot of television, I am a news junkie. Everybody that knows me knows that. And you don't have to watch very much of it to realize that the world, for some reason, seems a little darker this year, doesn't it? Maybe it's the poll that seemed to hung over the national mood since our divisive election, or the police shootings in Missouri and Florida and Idaho and Michigan. Maybe it's the number of global hotspots there are now in the Middle East and in the Ukraine and North Korea. Maybe it's the horrific attack on a Christmas market in Berlin. Maybe it's the number of deaths that are rising from the scourge of drug abuse. You know, right now, if you listen to experts, the fact is that the death rate from drug overdoses is climbing at a much faster rate than any other cause of death in the United States right now. That's almost unbelievable. Medical experts say it's on par with the HIV epidemic of the 1980s and the 1990s. Are you depressed yet? But you probably get the picture. That the world now just seems somehow rather dark and hostile. And when you think about that, I wonder what this Christmas is supposed to feel like when so much of the world seems to be in so much turmoil. When the angels cry, a peace on earth seems more like a wish than a present reality. When we who gather to sing carols and light candles and hear the Christmas story seem to be so very small against the backdrop of such a troubled world. And thinking about that is when a part of Luke's Nativity Gospel kind of jumped out at me, and we've all heard it so many times, but I want you to think of it a little differently, the way it struck me a little differently. Luke wrote, In those days a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration that was taken while Quinarius was governor of Syria. Doesn't sound like much, does it? But that's an important passage. And what strikes me about that is the events that Luke goes on to describe in the birth narrative are so incredibly small too. I mean, what does the mighty Emperor Augustus and the great Governor Quinarius care about a pregnant teenager or wandering shepherds? I mean, Mary and Joseph and the rest of the cast at the manger are pretty insignificant compared to those rulers of the day, aren't they? And yet Luke declares that whether the rich and powerful leaders care or not, Heck, whether they even notice or not, the events that Luke describes in detail are going to change the whole world. And that's a pretty bold claim when you think about it. That the birth of a baby to an unwed teen in the squalor of a backwater town could possibly matter at all. And yet, there it is, in a nutshell, is the promise of the gospel. That God regularly shows up where we least expect God to be. And then he turns the whole world's ideas of meaning and worth upside down. And we could sure use that right now, couldn't we? In a day where the average person's concern is only for themselves and for their own wants, for their own needs, for people who view the world like they themselves are the center of existence, the supreme governor of their own lives, the arbiters of reality. And they couldn't be more wrong, but they don't know it. I'll give you a little story to illustrate that. I heard uh, not too long ago a pastor tell a story of two U.S. sailors who had been stationed in England during World War II and 
how one night they made their way into one of the local pubs and proceeded to drink themselves into a stupor. Now, when the local pub owner finally kicked them out in the wee hours of the morning, they found that a dense English fog had rolled in. And since they couldn't see any landmarks around them, they realized that they weren't going to be able to find their way back to the ship. Now, just as they began to look around and search for some kind of signpost to get their bearings, they saw a man walking towards them. Now, they didn't know it, but he was a high-ranking naval officer dressed in formal evening clothes on his way back from a late-night dinner party at the U.S. Embassy. The drunken soldiers didn't recognize him out of uniform, so they said, uh, Excuse me, Governor, could you point us to the port? Well, the officer was furious at the men's drunken behavior, but even more furious that they didn't recognize him. So he bellows, Don't you know who I am? And after a brief pause, one of the sailors said, Wow, we're really in trouble. We don't know where we are, and this guy doesn't know who he is. <laughs> but isn't that the state of the world that we're in today, right? A, a world that wants to break with every ideal of the past, that wants to break with every moral frame, framework, that leads us to believe that we can self-identify as whatever or whoever we want to be without any higher frame of reference or meaning, that everything will be okay if we just give people more stuff and fix the economy. It reminded me of a quote by Viktor Frankl, who was a Jewish psychotherapist that survived the horrors of the concentration camps in Germany during World War II. And listen to what he wrote, because I think this is really timely. He said, for too long we have been dreaming a dream from which we are just now waking up. The dream that if we improve the socioeconomic situation of people, that everything will be okay. That people will be happy. But the truth is, that as the struggle for survival has subsided, the question has emerged, survival for what? And he concludes by saying, ever more people today have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. Ever more people today have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. See, he was getting at the question of meaning. Does human life have a purpose? Is there something we're designed to aim at? something we're intended to be. Because if, if atheism is true and there is no God, then there can't be any grand purpose for life, right? We're just freak cosmic accidents, just random atoms thrown up by the tides of tide and chaos and natural selection. Nothing more than matter and molecules. But if that is true, then some pretty drastic consequences follow. Because then there's nothing wrong with treating our fellow human beings on that basis, is there? as if they had no inherent value or dignity. And don't we really see that being played out in the news every day right now? And the sad part is our focus gets even more blurred by those people that wish to be politically correct. So I just realized that instead of uh, the kids now being on Christmas vacation, they're enjoying what they call their winter break. No more Christmas vacation. The words Merry Christmas have turned into Happy Holidays. A phrase that has no real meaning when the biggest emotion that most people feel during this happy holiday is not happiness, but resentment, exhaustion, depression. Because the truth is, as Frankel said, no amount of education or culture or economic success will ever change that because none of those things can change the only thing that needs change, and that's the human heart. 
Our hearts need to be changed, and only God is big enough to do that. And at Christmas, he sent his son for just that purpose. The baby in Bethlehem who comes to offer his redemption and his hope and peace and joy to every tongue and tribe and race and nation and every sector of life. If only they would see it. If people would just realize at Christmas time that time was interrupted by eternity, that the silence of Earth's dark night was broken by an angelic announcement. And as one author said that by the call of the miraculous entering the mundane and the monotonous, the pure calling out to impurity, the power to change appealing to our intransigence, that's the miracle that we need to change this world. The story of Earth's greatest visitation. Kind of reminds me of that modern-day Christmas carol by a country singer named Faith Hill. You may have heard of it. called A Baby Changes Everything, and I'm going to share that with you today. Teenage girl, much too young, unprepared what's to come. A baby changes everything. Not a ring on her head, all her dreams and all her plans. A baby changes everything. A baby changes everything. The man she loves. She's never touched How will she Keep his trust A baby changes everything A baby changes everything And she
changes everything. A baby changes everything. Everything. That baby really did change everything, didn't he? And in the miracle of the incarnation, Jesus shows us that human beings are not just atoms. We're not just matter. We're more than the stuff that we're made of. We're more than our economic production or our relationships. We're more than our biology or our psychology. We are image bearers of Almighty God who carry incredible value, incredible significance, value so high that Jesus was willing to pay the price of his life to redeem and restore that image that we've broken. One pastor said he did that so that the mirror of our souls might be angled at him and reflect the true image of God as it was intended. And in so doing that we might be truly human in the light of Jesus Christ. So although the world is dark, it's not forsaken. And those headlines that we read and worry about today can have their day, but one day, they'll fade away against the backdrop of this little Christmas story that we've been telling for over 2,000 years. You know, and I realize that that message can sound simplistic when so many of us struggle to see God amidst the bad news of the world. When so many more wonder where God is in the midst of their own private pain, pain of broken relationships, or lost loved ones, or illness, or job loss, or depression. Or maybe it's just that we get caught up in the day-to-day routine of making ends meet and we have a hard time imagining that God could possibly make a difference in our world. Oh, sure, maybe we believe in him in general, but sensing God's presence, let alone seeing God in the nitty-gritty of everyday life, is a different story, isn't it? You know, maybe some days your philosophy relates better to the depressing opinion of the secular humanist philosopher Richard Dawkins. This is what he said. The universe is a place of blind physical forces and genetic replication. Some people are going to get hurt. Some people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. 
He'd be fun at a Christmas party, wouldn't he? <clears throat> a man who can examine the complexities of the universe and not see God. But we know better, don't we? We know the universe isn't like that because we know someone and something that Dawkins can't conceive. The God of the universe that not only created humanity, but condescended to become one of us. As John chapter 1 tells us, So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. But do people really see it when they're too busy pursuing their own agendas? When they're too busy looking to themselves for answers? And you know, maybe the problem isn't that God is impossible to see, but rather we are all too prone to look for him in the wrong places. We have been all through history. I'm going to give you an example by Christian author Ravi Zacharias, who tells us about an example of this from history. He wrote, The greatest pursuit of the Hebrew cultures was light. Everything was idealized by light, as in the Lord is my light and my salvation. Or this is the light that lighteth every man that comes into the world. Or Isaiah writing, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. So the Hebrews looked for light. For the Roman civilization, the ideal was glory. The glory of the Caesars. The glory of the Roman Empire, the city to which all roads led. For the Greeks, it was knowledge. The ideal of the academy, the ideal of the philosopher, the ideal of knowledge. So all of these great human cultures pursuing these different paths to the divine, but Oh, miss the simple truth recorded by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, who, by the way, was a Hebrew by birth and a Roman citizen living in a Greek city. He said, God, God who has caused the light to shine out of darkness, has caused his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Jesus is that touchstone. He's the linchpin, the catalyst that transcends all of our human attainments and brings us into an intimate encounter with the God who became flesh. Taking our lot and our lives and giving us a future and a hope grounded amid all the stark realities of life. Because, you know, when we go to God's word, it's not light reading, is it? It's not pie-in-the-sky fantasy because between its pages, God unfolds a narrative of murder, sexual affairs, Manipulation, extortion, and on and on. With story after story, and we begin to see that evil has stained all of us. In fact, Romans 3.23 tells us that we have all sinned and are therefore separated from God. Yet throughout the biblical narrative, God also weaves the promise and the appearance of a Savior. Giving us our hope and our future that we'll be redeemed. Giving us a hope for the present that we're not alone, but we are loved and we have a purpose. And hope even for our past, that our failures are not greater than God's power to transform us. And when we as believers speak of hope, we don't mean a a desire or a wish that might not be fulfilled. Our hope is certain. Our hope for forgiveness and for reconciliation with God and eternal life. Because it rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ and recognizing that he alone brings contentment. Regardless of our material possessions and joy despite difficult circumstances. A joy and a hope that nothing can destroy because it's stored in heaven where no earthly power can touch it. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter chapter 1, he said, All praise to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's by his great mercy that we've been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive his salvation. Can you begin to see how much God loves us? I mean, just think that the creator of the cosmos would bother to know that we exist on what some people have described as an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy, tucked away in some far corner of the universe in which there are more galaxies than people. But you know what? God knows us personally. He knows you personally. In a, a universe of over 100 billion galaxies, and he just doesn't know that you exist. He loves you. He cherishes you. It's almost too good to be true, isn't it? But then, then he comes as a baby to actually be with us. It's almost unbelievable. But it's true that God so loved the world at Christmas. When God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became the babe in the manger, that he might become the man of the cross. That he might die as our perfect substitute, to release us from the penalty of sin and reconcile us with God so that we could receive not just eternal life, but the meaning for it, the meaning for life. In his uh, 2011 Christmas message, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Rowan Williams, wrote this, and I want to share it with you. He said, at the very heart of Christian faith and practice is this encounter with the God who questions, who are you? Where are you? Are you on the side of life that lives in Jesus, the life of grace and truth, of unstinting generosity and unsparing honesty, the kind of life that gives life to others? Or you're on the other side, one of disconnection and rivalry, the hoarding of gifts and obsession with control, because what we say or do in our response to Jesus is our way of discovering for ourselves and showing to one another what is real in us and for us. The truth is still an uncompromising one because if you cannot or will not respond, you're walking away from reality in Christ into a realm, he says, of trackless, fog-bound falsehood. He's got kind of a way with words. I like that quote. But that reminded me, just like the little joke that I told earlier when we're walking away into a fog of darkness, leaving us no idea who we are, or where we're going. But that tiny baby in Bethlehem changed everything on Christmas. When God sent his eternal word, a word that was heard around the world, and that word in Jesus Christ is still speaking today. So stop and listen to it. Get your bearings. Because when all the chaos of life in this world seems to be swirling around us, there is one fixed point of reference the virgin will conceive and bear a child. And they'll call his name Emmanuel. That means God with us. And may he be with us today and every day. Merry Christmas. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you so much for this holy Christmas day. We thank you that you were willing to send your son that we might have eternal life. And we ask, Lord, that you would be with us as we go now to our homes and our families. 
that we would carry that light of Christ with us in everything that we do. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for the Apostles' Creed in the closing hymn? Brothers and sisters, let's confess together what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.